Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Amen. We're continuing on through the book of Esther, and we're in Esther chapter 4. And while we've been in this book, we've been able to see a bunch of different things about not only Esther, but about the kingdom of Persia. And one of the things that we've seen is a gentleman named King Xerxes or King Ashuerus. And he is an interesting individual. He has this huge kingdom that stretches from India to Ethiopia. And he's kind of maniacal. He's a power person that's on a power trip, a little insecure. And one of the things that we see happen just from the last chapter is he was upset by the Jews. So because he got upset, Mordecai wouldn't basically bow to him, wouldn't respond to him. He got upset. So because of that, he wanted to slaughter all of the Jews. It says in Esther chapter 3, verse 13, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction, watch this, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews. Very clear what they're trying to communicate. They want to see genocide. To be clear, who? Well, the young, the old, women, and children in one day. The edict that he puts out there is very clear. He wants to see a slaughter of all Jews. And so seemingly the only hope would be to appeal to the king, to be in his favor. But what it would end up happening in this, in this chapter that we're going to see is the appeal would eventually go to Esther, the queen. Now, Queen Esther has come into prominence for two reasons alone. Her beauty and her compliance, her beauty and her compliance. Esther chapter two, verse 17 says, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. One of the things that you see is that She was just so beautiful that not only did the king think she was beautiful, but all the other women thought she was beautiful. You know, there's a girl that's so fine that other women are like, she bad. You know, like that, like she looks that good. And so that's the only reason why she's standing out is her beauty. But what we see at the end there is that she replaced a woman named Vashti. And Vashti was the queen before her. And Vashti, he wanted his other queen to be basically gallivanted in front of all the people to show off her beauty, and she refused. And then we don't hear from her anymore. So she understands, I'm here because of my beauty, and I'm here because of my compliance. Don't mess this up, Esther. Well, this chapter is a defining moment for Esther, because Esther has another name. Esther's original name is Hadassah. And that name is a Jewish name. And that name essentially means myrtle tree. And the myrtle tree was a picture of righteousness and hope for the Jewish people. She has been raised in this Persian kingdom, kept 
under wraps quiet her true identity. And so as she is Hadassah, she's also been given the name Esther. And the name Esther actually means hidden and concealed. And the question that would be before her is that would she reveal that she is one of those people that are going to be oppressed and slaughtered and appeal to the king? Or would she be Esther, hidden, quiet, concealing? This is the defining moment for Esther. Who is she? Now, this chapter, though, it has a principle that strings into our culture and into our church. Culturally, we've seen historically, what you're actually seeing here in this moment is we're seeing a Jewish woman that can pass as a Persian woman. Her whole life, what she's been able to do is be under the, be racially ambiguous enough that people put her in the Persian category, so much so that she's risen to the prominence of a queen. One author would consider this called racial passing. This idea of passing we see not only in this book, but we've seen it historically throughout our country when a dominant group has so much power and platform that minority groups attempt to look like the dominant group and in many ways curtail their own story in order to have success and survival. It's not only black people that have done this in order to be in the majority context. Chinese nationals have attempted to look like Mexicans in order to cross the border. Jews, back in the days of the Nazis, attempted to seem like they were German only for survival and success. Changing your background, your social identifiers, in order to be at the bottom, in order to avoid being at the bottom of the class system. But when you pass, it comes at a cost. Alison Hobbs, in her book, Chosen Exile, she writes of all the different ways that people globally have attempted to pass to choose another narrative and to not be a part of an oppressed people. And she tells of a story of a young woman who lived out in Chicago, and her mother knew that she was fair-skinned to the point where she could look white. So her mother sends her to L.A., and she lives out in L.A. and begins to grow up there, and she marries a white man. When she marries this white man, she eventually has kids. She never tells that man that she's biracial, and she never tells their kids that they have a quarter of black blood in them. She raises herself as white in this community. But then one day, she gets a phone call from her mom. And her mother says, honey, your father is dying. We need you home. I want him to hear your voice one more time. The daughter paused the mom says, come on now, he needs your voice. The daughter says to her mom, mom, I can't. I'm a white woman now. And when she was saying that, she was in essence saying, I've gone so far in this new narrative that I can't go back now, even to the point of helping my dad. And although it seems tragic, hearing the story of this young lady, there is a sense in which we not only may want to pass for the sake 
of race or nationality. But oftentimes we all have this penchant, this desire to be accepted in the larger community, to be accepted with cultural trends, to never ever be canceled. You see, in many ways, what we see historically happening with racial passing and what we see happening in this narrative of racial passing often can happen in our own lives with spiritually passing. To be spiritually ambiguous. That you're on the job and you really, you you go to a community on Sunday, but you don't like to say church. You talk about meditation and, 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 and releasing things in your mind, but you don't really talk about prayer and filling yourself up. You see, being spiritually ambiguous comes at a cost because over time, just like that young lady, you can say, I'm a dancer now. I'm here in this community. I'm here in New York. I'm here amongst all my peers, and I want to be able to get to the top, to the platform. I'm an actor now. I'm a lawyer now. I have a new identity now. And now fellowship doesn't do what it did. Now it's in the way. Getting in your word is not doing what it did. It's kind of getting in the way. Spiritual ambiguity causes safety with the world, but it's dangerous with your relationship with God. The question that you have to ask yourself after the pandemic, after the promotion, after the relationship, who are you now? Anytime we're put in places of prominence and influence, success, there'll always be a question of your new story. Who are you now? I knew who you were when you were struggling and you were praying and you couldn't pay rent, but now that the checks are flowing in, now you can, you can, you know, you can set up regular giving. Amen. Now you can do that, right? You, you can, you can do that. Who are you now? When you're not feeling the weight Well, you have to pray, but you pray out of intimacy, not urgency. Who are you now? And all of us will have a defining moment like Esther, where we will have a decision to make. Who are your people? Who do you identify with? Who are you now? In this story, Mordecai learns of the edict that comes out. And so he does this incredible thing in Esther chapter four, verses two and three. It says, he went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So what you have to understand about what's happening in this moment is Mordecai has become aware of the edict to slaughter all Jews. And in his awareness, he decides to lament and mourn and pray to God, but he does not do it in his home. He does it at the king's gate. Now, be very clear. The king's gate is not the city gate. The city gate would mean you're outside of the city protesting, crying, lamenting. He's at the king's gate. At the king's gate, meaning that it's the kingdom of Persia, 
which is in the city of Susa, right? The, the capital of Persia. And in the western part of Susa, there is what you call the, uh, there, there's basically the palace. And in order to go up to the palace, you have to go 120 feet up. And so basically that's where the palace complex is. So what Mordecai has done is he's walked all the way up to the palace, gone to the gate, and he's having a protest about what he's seeing amongst his people. He's crying out. Now, you have to also understand that at the king's gate, this is where a lot of the uh, Uh, a lot of the business of the day that would happen. Uh, The elders would be there. All the officials would be there. The king's palace was where the prominence of power is. And so here's Mordecai outside of the gate, lamenting, weeping, mourning. And so it says in Esther 4.4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, The queen was deeply distressed. Now look at what she does. Esther is in the palace. He's outside the palace. And Esther sends garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Sackcloth was worn as a physical representation of saying, I'm mourning. In the same way that you would wear black when you go to a funeral, you would wear sackcloth when you are mourning at that time. The problem is the king would not allow anyone near the gate or inside the gate that was wearing sackcloth. Here he is in front of the gate with sackcloth on, and and so his niece, basically, um, Esther sends him new clothes and says, listen, 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 you're bringing too much attention to yourself. Put on some new clothes. And Mordecai refuses those clothes. Mordecai essentially says, I am not going to put on a pretty face during an ugly massacre. I'm going to stand with the people that are hurting. I'm going to lament as people are lamenting. And yes, there's moments that we are rejoicing, so I rejoice, but they are weeping, so I am weeping. And while you're in the palace, Esther, you're rejoicing while they're weeping. And the beautiful thing about the people of God is that we mimic our Savior who is on the side of oppressed and marginalized people. And if there is weeping in the city, we weep with them as we rejoice in the city. And you know, Mordecai, if he could, I'm sure he'd fight. I'm sure he would demand an army to be raised up. But when you are an oppressed people, you have no army. When you are an oppressed people, you have no weapons. When you're in a minority, you don't have the resources to fight physically. And one of the problems with our church today globally, but especially here in America, is that we, so, we want so badly to be a majority when God works profoundly through a minority. You see, it's amazing when the people of God only have one resource and it is him. When the people of God see him as their primary resource, this is what happens. When you don't have physical weapons, you mimic 2 Corinthians 10, 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
If you can't reach for the physical weapon, you reach for the spiritual weapon. And so what's happening here is Mordecai has come to the conclusion that someone's got to do something about this. And although he wants to petition the king and petition the queen, the first thing is he petitions the Lord. He goes up 120 feet right to the palace gate. But while he's going up there, he's already sought a higher power. Even though he's in front of the palace gate, he's also in front of the throne room of God. The reality is, is that he is seeking God while protesting this very evil moment. He has rejected it, but he has sought God with all his heart. One of the things that we have to keep in mind that this is an edict. This is a decree. This was written down. One of the things that we always want to remember, what we see happening in our country, we want to fight against different policies that are there, but we must remember every policy that creates a disparity is tied not just to a politician, but tied to a stronghold. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against governors and, and, and presidents. We're wrestling against principalities and powers. So our first step should be people of prayer and seeking his face. But then he says, look what happens with Mordecai. Mordecai does in Esther chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Mordecai also gave him a copy. <laughs> this is one of the eunuchs, um, one of basically the servants of uh, Esther gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor, plead with him on the behalf of her people. Notice what he does. He not only prays, he not only goes to the palace to protest, but he gets the actual specific decree, points out to her the parts that he needs her to understand. Because when one person in the palace sees the decree, it hits different when a person is outside the palace and they read the decree. In other words, when oppressed people read a principle or a policy, it hits different than people who have palace privilege. Praise God. And so what's happening here is he wants her to see this affects my community. This is affecting us holistically. We've got to see change and transformation. So he points to the exact decree. Notice, as a community, what we've decided is that we don't want to just be people who pray. We want to be people who pray, march, and act. And so this is why we went all the way to uh, the Barclay Center. We had all these people here, thousands of people, about a year or so ago after George Floyd died. He was killed, and we wanted to be able to fight against that. And so we go, we pray, we protest. We go to the center of power, which is the Barclay Center, I guess. <laughs> but then what we've been doing this whole year is we've been working on discovering different policies where we see racial disparities in our community. We have an event coming up uh, on Martin Luther King's Day, and we'll keep you abreast to that event. But we want you to know that behind the scenes, what we're working on are specific policies that we believe that are bringing about problems in our community. And so keep us in prayer as we continue to seek out specific areas, whether it's wealth, whether it's health, whether it's financial, 
whether it has to do with the carceral system. We want to be able to have specific areas that we are fighting against. Esther gets this decree, and her reply speaks to where she's at. It says in Esther chapter 4, 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in, into the king these 30 days. This is wild. The king is a very interesting cat. Because basically he has set it up to, if you come to him without him bidding, he'll kill you. That's a very, like you ever get somebody who calls you and you get bothered? This is that on like a thousand. Basically, if you're on his mind, you have a voice. But if he, he's on your mind, you can forget it. He, if he does not want to talk to you, you don't talk to him. And what she says is, I have not been with him for 30 days. Now, understand, she's the queen. He hadn't been alone these last 30 days, praise the Lord. What she says is, I haven't, I've been living in this palace for 30 days, and he hasn't even bid for me. How dare I go to him? He hasn't even bid for me. If he asks for me, if he requests me, then maybe, but... You want me to challenge this edict and he hasn't bid for me? I'd be messing it all up, Mordecai. I mean, I've gotten into this position because I've been compliant. You remember the last queen that messed things up? Compliance is what's got, I got to sit here and look pretty because I have been put in this position. I'm the queen now. Don't you understand? I know my people need my voice, but I'm the, I'm the queen now. And I want to keep my position here in the palace. She's not thinking about Israel. She's thinking it as, a, as an individual. She's thinking about survival. Years ago, in ministry... I used to have more flexibility to say things. And now, it is very, you got to be very careful how you communicate something. Because particularly in New York, because in some ways, it's better for people to not know what you really believe and what you really think, because you might be associated with people that are hurting or people that are crazy. So it's better to be kind of spiritually ambiguous. And you got to kind of got this position now at your job. And you just kind of want to maintain this like grayness so that no one really knows where you're at. That's a temptation for us all. Not just for you, it's a temptation for me. Temptation where I go anywhere. Especially as a pastor, because when I say I'm a pastor, things just get weird. But what I'm thinking about when I'm on a plane 
and I sit next to somebody and they ask me what I do, I'm not thinking, I'm, what I'm thinking is, when I feel that temptation, what I'm thinking is, I don't want to feel rejected. Versus maybe they need a pastor. Like maybe God put me on this plane next to them to serve them. And the fact of the matter is, a lot of times it's rejection and a lot of times it's opportunity. But, the, but as you have an identity in Christ, the question is, who are you now? Now that you're in your job, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're an architect. It's very simple. Will you be who God has called you to be? And you feel that tension. Or will you just protect your resume Protect your identity. Will you be more like Esther, the hidden one, or more like Hadassah, the tree that is meant for righteousness amongst the community? That is the question. The question isn't, do I tell people I'm, I know the Lord? Do I tell people I have a community? Do I tell people I read the word? The question is not about methods and tools. The question is, who are you? What's your real name? And so... Oh, Lord. Verse 12 and 13, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. And what he basically is telling her is that if you live your life hiding, you will eventually be found out. Now, the truth is, is that there are many people who hide their walk with God in order to be accepted in the community and in the culture. They spiritually pass. But let me tell you, as you spiritually pass, pretending is exhausting. Acting like you don't care about certain things that are happening in the world. And acting like Jesus is not just someone that's a good mentor, but he is your Lord and he is your Savior. And as you live out this life, you avoid the persecution that happens from walking down this road with Jesus. You see, this is the defining moment for Esther and we think our defining moment will be on platforms and stages. When Jesus' defining moment was a Calvary road, what we want is a red carpet. He had a red robe, but it was his blood. And when he sacrificed for us, it benefited everyone. But it was his death that made him great. It wasn't his skills. It wasn't his gifting. It wasn't his prominence. It wasn't his platform. He sacrificed a palace in order for a people. That's greatness. It's doing whatever God calls you to do. And if I'm rejected by men, I'm accepted by Christ. That's the call in our life. What's your name? Because I'd rather be child of God than be promoted. I'd rather be with the king, the king of kings, who will be with me when I go home 
You know, walk with me. And just like that phone call, we need your voice. We need your voice in our community. As a child of God, as a person who has got the spirit of God living inside of them, your gifting, your skill set, but not just in our community, in the world, on your job, you are not meant to put your light under a bushel. Your light is supposed to be shining amongst men. The church, the only way that we reframe the church in the world is not by pretending the church is not a part of you. It is by saying, I do go to church. I do have a community and Jesus is my Lord and staying with that. And let me just say this. If you have a friend that no longer wants to be your friend because you're a Christian, that was never your friend. Because to be my friend is to accept who I am. And I am a believer. That's not just something I do on the weekends. It's who I am. And if you don't want to accept who I am, you were never my friend. And you're missing out on prayer and the king of glory. You're missing out on wisdom. I am a valuable person. I'm a valuable commodity. I'm a good friend. And if you knew me, you'd love me. But you've only defined me by the people that have messed up the Christian world by by stumping for politicians and looking like fools. That's not Jesus and that's not me. I love Jesus. And we've got to allow ourselves to sit in this place and accept that persecution's part of the call. I don't know. I, don't, I know you came in here and you heard some good stories and we worship and we cry and do. I know, and the community's great and I get all that. But if you are not feeling the weight of the cross, I don't even know if you're growing. At some point, in some conversation, in some meeting, with some family member, there's going to be a tension, and you will be in a defining moment just like Hadassah or Esther. <laughs> and so, I want to then have you heed the warning that Mordecai lays to Esther. He says, in Esther 4.14, well, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Now, I just want you to hear the weight of that diss track right there. <laughs> that was weighty. Because what it felt like initially was he was saying, hey, 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 Hadassah, hey, girl, hey, if you don't save us, what are we going to do? That's not what he said. He said, if you don't step up, he'll replace you. Now that hits different because that's very humbling. Essentially, what, what the Lord is telling Hadassah, you got chosen for your beauty, right? But where'd you get your beauty, right? You climbed up the ladder because of your gifts, right? But where'd you get your gifts, right? You had all these experiences that put you in this position that you were able to have wisdom and insight. Who gave you that wisdom and insight? Oh, Hadassah, I, maybe you forgot but if you don't remember it was grace, you'll be replaced. 
And if we don't remember that grace put us in the position we're in, then we'll forget who's in the story and who's the author. You'll forget how you got in the positions that you're in. It's all been by grace. Because if grace gave it to me, then even if I have to sacrifice it, grace can give it to me again. God can give it to me again. God can give it to me again. I'll never forget leaving my, my first church. I was 29. I stayed there from 29 to 34. And while I was there, I'll never forget. I was making the decision to leave and I was crying and I was up there and I didn't know what to do. And I'll never forget my father said, if the Lord gave this to you, this opportunity to you, he can give you another opportunity that's even better than that opportunity. And some of you right now are walking on eggshells because you're trying to keep a position. Some of you are even walking on eggshells because you're trying to keep a relationship and you're trying to hide who you really are. And, and what Mordecai tells her is, one, you'll be found out. You're not really getting away with anything. But I would say this, some of you may successfully pass, but you're failing spiritually. And you're not really letting people know who you are. It is true that you can play the game, you can pretend, but you won't be who God has called you to be. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works he's prepared beforehand so we might walk in them. And so God has given you a work to do. If you notice in Luke chapter 16, there is this moment where you have the rich man and Lazarus. And if you read the story, you know that this story is about one man being poor his whole life and eventually being with God and another man being rich his whole life and being separated from God. But you ever notice the story is called Rich Man and Lazarus? What's the rich man's name? What's the rich man's name? We don't know. And what we learn historically is that's a literary device. You see, Lazarus, even though he was poor, even though he was broken, even though he was destitute, he still had a name. But the rich man, that's what he is, a rich man. And that's what he is now. And when you work so hard, you say, I'm an actor now. I'm a dancer now. I'm a lawyer now. I'm in New York now. I've got these friends now. In many ways, you lose your name. That's all you become. And you have to preserve that position. And you have to keep your place in the palace. Everybody's afraid of being canceled. Everybody's afraid of what to say. But our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the Lord has put us in the positions that we're in. And that gives us the courage to do whatever God is calling us to do and not just pass and not just get by. How humbling is it to hear that there's someone just like your story and God 
can use them too. One of the cool things that uh, happened when we got the church on Atlantic, there's another church, Epiphany Brooklyn, good, good brothers and sisters over there. And I said, hey, where's your church? And they said, on Atlantic. I was like, word, word. <laughs> and you know why that's good? Because Atlantic's not ours. It's his. You know why that's good? Because it re- it's a reminder to us. He could just do Tunnel Church. He could just do another church. He could do Epiphany Church. He could do just another church. Tent Church. He could just do another church. He doesn't need Bridge Church. He didn't need another location. And, and I know that you have been placed where you are, and I know you're special, and you are God's gift, but don't get it twisted. There's someone out there that could use that opportunity, and they'll be a light. They'll be salt. And they're clamoring for the moment. So don't hold on to your positions in the palace. Hold on to the king. Stay intimate with him. And so lastly, in verse 15 and 16, Esther told them, these are the servants, verse 16, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days or night or a day. I and my young woman would also fast as you do. Now, I want you to know what she does then. She says, then, then I'll go to the king. Esther begins to pray. She begins to fast. In fact, she calls on for a corporate fast. Little does she know a corporate fast was already happening. But she calls on a corporate fast. And she's asking God to give her the courage and the wisdom. Then she says, then I'll go to the king. Though it's against the law, and listen to what she says. And if I perish, I perish. And I want you, and I want that kind of boldness to say the things that I believe God has put me in a position to say, to do the things that I believe God has given me the ability to do, and to go the places that God has given me the ability to go. And I don't want my fears to stop me from my purpose and my destiny. I don't want popularity to keep me from where I believe God has called me. I want to go and do everything as God has called me to do. So maybe some of you need to recalibrate and call on some people to pray with you and fast with you and seek the Lord's face and have that kind of freedom to be able to have the boldness that God has called you to have. There are meetings that you are in. There are people you are around that God wants you to be a light amongst them. Kelly McWilliams, she wrote in a Time Magazine article, she said, as a biracial woman, it's always been important to me to practice what she calls anti-passing. She says to fight the intimate battles 
that a white passing person can because I benefit so immensely and so unfairly from the privilege of my racial ambiguity. And what she basically, I love what she says. She says she practices anti-passing. She refuses to not be involved in the micro battles that it takes to be a black person on a job, even though she looks white. In the same way, we have a choice in our communities and in our jobs to be the people of God or to hide, to be like Hadassah, the righteous tree, or to be Esther, the hidden and concealed. And I pray that you would keep your light shining where you are. But the reason we're in community isn't just to encourage each other, but it's to be healed in a broken world. And as you share your walk with God, of course, there'll be some who take what you say the wrong way. Of course, there'll be people who cancel you. Of course, there'll be people who reject you. And what will you be like? Jesus, the innocent one, hung next to murderers, hung next to thieves, killed like a man who had committed a crime, though he was innocent. We'd be like Jesus, persecuted. And so we must heed the warning of Mordecai. If you don't speak, he'll replace you. It reminds me of that great prophetess, Beyonce. She said in her song years ago, the B-Day album, amen? She says, in speaking, in speaking of a man, but I think it has correlation. You must not know about me. You, you must not know about me. I could have another you in a minute. Matter of fact, he'll be here in a minute. Baby. Never forget, you're special and you're gifted. But if he placed you, he can replace you. Never forget you've been placed. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. And we are honored you've been, you've put us where we are. Thank you for placing us where you've placed us. Thank you for gracing us the way you've graced us. We ask that you would use us however you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. 
You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at BridgeChurchNYC. Our website is BridgeChurchNYC.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.